Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to be with you, as always. Good to be with you. You've been off on the road doing all kinds of road shows with Neha on healing and leadership. Well done, you. Yes, it was the Energize and Awaken Tour. Combining uh, our two books, Mind Being Awakened, hers is on burnout. It's called Powered by Me, from burned out to fully charged at home and at work, something like that. This week, we get to introduce to our listeners a dear friend, Amy Elizabeth Fox. Amy is the founder and the chief executive officer of what is one of the most advanced and best leadership development firms in the world, Mobius Executive Leadership. As a senior leadership strategist, she has extensive experience in consulting to senior leadership on issues related to human capital, organizational health, and leadership development. Over the past decade and a half, she's spoken at many, many national gatherings, and each year Mobius hosts a very important week, which is coming up next week, the Next Practice Institute. We'll get into a discussion of best practice versus next practice. Prior to Mobius, Amy was a trainer at Vantage Partners and anchored their program on having difficult conversations not that any of us ever have any of those in our lives, right? She's a certified executive coach, and importantly, she's a psychotherapist who's affiliated with the Cambridge Health Associates in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has a BA from Wesleyan University and a master in counseling from Leslie College. Amy's based just outside Boston in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be with both of you, Timothy and Raj. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I really meant what I said when I said that, you know, having been involved in leadership and conscious leadership, I really think your organization and the people you bring are the best in the world at what they do. And it's really um, an amazing organization. So maybe start with telling us a little bit about your journey with your sister. The two of you founded this in, what, 2005? And, you know, you've got a story to tell there, I bet. <laughs> Well, it's we're in year 19, so as you can imagine, there's many stories. Um, it's been a very windy road um, because like both of you, you know, Mobius's aspiration is to bring transformation and healing and real vertical development into the field of leadership transformation. And so um, that requires several things that I think um, necessitate that it be a bit of a journey. The most important one is that the practitioners themselves have to go on a process, go through a process of cultivating their own inner life. Um, when you are aspiring to touch somebody at the depth of their life journey, their narrative, their emotions, their spirit, um, the instrument of that change is your ability to relate in a very vulnerable, open and authentic dimension and to meet and encounter and host very profound emotional experience. 
Um, so the, I, I think the most important part of the Mobius story uh, you alluded to, Timothy, it's, you know, it's an extraordinary group of practitioners. We have a very interdisciplinary approach to change work. So we have team interventionists, coaches, facilitators, therapists, as well as expressive artists and somatic practitioners. Um, and we come to the work through a very right brain learning methodology and modality. Um, but what perhaps is the most touching about the group is that we've really formed ourselves into a loving community or what in sometimes spiritual terms would be considered a sangha, a group of people committed to really accompanying each other's healing process in raw ways, in generous ways, and in ways that make Mobius a sort of living and breathing organism, not just a sort of firm or an enterprise. Um, so I think that's in some ways the most touching and inspiring part of our story. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, you, you touched on something here that I think is important to play out a little bit for everybody's background, which is vertical development. And some of the things that we've learned about adult development and how that applies to the whole notion of leadership. I'd love you to talk a little bit about that and how your experience in that has grown over the last 19 years. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just start by using our mutual friends, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy's model of adult development, because I think it lays out a, a reasonable staging for the process people go through. And then I'll add a dimension to it if I could. So they talk about three stages of consciousness, essentially. The first being a socialized orientation to the world, um, which is inevitable, really, because we're raised in families and in communities with sets of norms and rules and expectations. And we learn to get loved by obliging ourselves to the family norms and rules and expectations. The things that get rewarded um, tend to be the behaviors that we orient towards as children, understandably. The dilemma is that for many adults, they've never moved past an external validation um, set of priorities. So they are making their choices moment by moment about how to craft their lives, how to build their relationships, how to understand who they are, their identity shaped by the signals from outside. And at some point that becomes a very hollow process. Um, and often in our leadership programs, we see executives come in who feel like they've ticked every box, they've done everything that they thought was expected of them. And in fact, they've reached many of the goals that they've held for their lives. And at a certain point, they turn inward and realize it's just not very satisfying, that they mm. don't actually really have a sense of who they are. They don't really feel like they're creating their life out of their own values, their own inner compass, their own inner guidance. Um, and that shift, Bob and Lisa describe as the move from socialized orientation to self-authoring orientation. And that's a critical liberation um, because it allows people to start to move from their own joy, from their own meaning making, from their own sense of calling. Um, and, you know, that's a tremendous vitality that gets unlocked in that moment. And of course, it's a it's not a one time occasion. That's a constant sorting of where am I pulled? What are my gifts? What are my strengths? What am I what do I love to do? Where do I get my energy from? Um, and increasingly, organizations are starting to think about employee purpose, not just mutual purpose. I think for this reason um, that we now know there's a tremendous connection between engagement and being able to drive or move from this inner source of, of power, potency. The ultimate step they describe is the move from self-authoring or sort of egocentric to what might be considered ecocentric or the, sometimes was called servant leadership. 
It's when you become capable not only of being a fluid, changing creature, constantly growing, constantly evolving, constantly in a developmental orientation, but also look at life in a way that allows you to update in a constant way your own perspective, not to get rigid in your thinking, to become sort of like a quicksilver response emergently, moment by moment to the context around you. And those capacities ultimately, I think, are spiritual capacities, um, capacities of consciousness, of awareness. Um, they allow you to really devote your life to something wider, um, something bigger, um, and they ennoble the possibility of the human endeavor in a way that I think is ultimately the journey of vertical development. Now, you said you wanted to add a fourth. What would the fourth dimension be if you were going to add one? <laughs> it's it's sort of like an underlying dimension. It's the dimension of psycho-spiritual healing. So mm. in a socialized mind, part of the reason somebody is looking for external validation is that they haven't cultivated a sense of their own inner sufficiency or the capacity for self-blessing or what my friend Terry Real would describe as they don't have centralized self-esteem. And often that's because of a, a traumatic experience in their own lives or in their parents' lives or in their ancestry or even in their collective lineage. And so when we think about vertical development, absent trauma-informed understanding, we're really, the best we're going to get is a set of cognitive shifts, but not an embodied sea change, not the sort of catalytic unleash that's possible when we couple that mindset shift with a deep healing and restoration for the person. Um, and I think that's some of the pioneering work Mobius is aspiring to do. That's incredibly well put. Thank you, Amy. Really well put. Thanks. I want to come back to the idea of healing in a little bit. Uh, but before we do that, Amy, I want to first talk about sort of what are our cultural norms, you know, especially in this culture, around leadership? What do we think as the prototypical leader? And uh, you know, the kind of work that you're describing, I think, feels to certain people but overall, if you look in the culture and how people are responding and thinking about leadership, uh, it seems that it's quite different. We're kind of still stuck in an old way of thinking about that, you know, and this whole idea of a boss, right? Everybody in America has a boss. You know? And I have an allergy to that word. I mean, I learned the origin of that word comes from the Dutch word boss, which means master, it comes from slavery. So um, do you think we still have a lot of that? Do you still, are we still kind of stuck in an old way of thinking about Business, uh, about leadership in the world of politics and in the world of business. Do you see that changing? Do you see that evolving overall in the broader culture? I mean, over 30 years ago, the pioneer organizational theorist, Chris Argeris, talked about model one and model two thinking. And essentially what they were pointing to, Chris and his colleagues, was the difference between a mindset of power over and a power with, you know, would be one way to talk about it in feminist terms. Um, they were describing the difference between a mechanistic view of the workplace and thinking of the workplace as a living natural system and organism. Um, and to your point, Raj, they were pointing at the sort of shadow side of authority, of the ways that authority, colonialism, racism, gender bias, uh, lack of emotional attunement, lack of relational orientation, a premature premise on preference for autonomy and what we now call, quote, resilience versus community and interdependence and belonging. You've described this with Nalima as the movement from masculine orientation to feminine orientation. One could think of it as the difference between disembodied leadership and whole person leadership. We could describe it many, many ways. I'm referencing Chris' work just to say it's been a long journey already in our mm -hmm. field 
to try to introduce these ideas. And they've been pointed at in multiple ways. Peter Senge talked about it as personal mastery. Danny Goleman talked about it as emotional intelligence. Amy Edmondson talks about it as psychological safety. Tom DeLong talked about it as vulnerability. They're all describing movements of the heart and the necessity of more a more intimate, more humane, and more democratized, inclusive workplace. Um, so at one level, we could say, uh, you know, theorists have been pointing for a long time and the movement is slow. That's true. Um, and for the pain points that the unnatural approach to leadership causes, it is too long. And it's, you know, has a, a, a unfortunate aftermath, I think, in many people's lives um, in how they've experienced the workplace as less than inclusive and welcoming and honoring. On the other hand, I feel like when I train the next generation of leaders, people who will be in the C-suite, you know, in in the next decade, many of them find this a very natural a way to think about leading. It's it it resonates with that generation's perspectives, which are more um, egalitarian and ecological and oriented towards life. Um, so I feel like there's a speeding up that's happened certainly post COVID. Some of the sensitivity, for example, to the urgency of paying attention to mental health and physical well-being and, and some kind of work-life balance themes that the three of us were talking about quite a long time ago um, now have a, a different level of resonance, I think, in leadership development. I would say one caution that I've seen and one trend that I've seen that I find very alarming just in the last six months, there was for a period of time a kind of sensitivity to the fact that vertical development is slower meaning it takes real time. You have to pull out of the office. You have to turn your attention away from day-to-day -day work in order to explore your inner landscape in a significant way and in order to experiment with new ways of being. And I find more recently clients, once again, very hesitant to take people out of the workplace um, for anything more than a half day or a one day process. And, you know, it's sort of, um, it's the equivalent of saying you can go on a long spiritual journey by doing a weekend workshop. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and only, only an orientation to the notion that you learn by ideas would believe that you can speed up a process that's actually a learning by metabolization, a learning by seeping and soaking, um, a learning by um, freeing yourself up from habits that are long grooved and well-worn. Um, that takes time. It takes reflection. It takes white space. It takes spaciousness and stillness. Mm -hmm to cultivate real wisdom. And so if we want to see, you mentioned governments, if we want to see organizations or society start to make wiser choices, um, we're just going to have to tolerate the slowing down that's required in order to really mature ourselves. And I see that as one of the biggest obstacles right now in real leadership development. Wow, thank you. That's really well articulated, Amy, the way you put it. And and I think a couple things come to mind as you're talking. The first one is you used the word wisdom, you know? So it's like at one level, you know, we've always had modern elders or the wise elders, or we've we valued that in people and individuals, be it the wise woman, the wise man. And it's such a essential human thing. And now we're coming back and being able to start to say sometimes, hey, we need more wisdom in the workplace that this is a, this is a good thing um and you just highlighted that in a sense that you know hey there's no fast track to wisdom you know take two pills and call me in the morning sure. and hey um 
So how do you engage in that dialogue when you start to talk about, hey, in this organization, you want to have a leadership development program that's over years. How do you start introducing the ideas of, of wisdom? And I would argue it's it's close sister courage, <laughs> the ability to act from your heart and step into the difficult with wisdom. Um, because at some level, those are just sort of basic core human things. Um, but somehow we've lost that when it comes to leadership development in many of its modern guises. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's not one formula for how to do that. All three of us probably do it, introduce it to clients in different ways. I mean, one part of the answer is pointing at the pain points that come from the absence of courage or the absence of wisdom. So people almost universally feel the weight of conversations that aren't being had in the boardroom because they're being had in the water cooler because people don't feel at liberty inside of a team meeting to say, I don't see it that way, or I disagree, or to speak at all. So there's, um, in a world that's more and more complex, we know there's an urgency to have real collective intelligence because the picture is too complicated for any one leader to see. So they need all of the reconnaissance and insight of the field of the whole team. But if they then create dynamics on that team that are lowering the level of safety and lowering the level of risk that people feel able to take, the information literally isn't getting into the system. Um, so that's a huge cost, um, not only to being able to see clearly, perceive clearly in a nuanced and dimensional way the picture that you're dealing with, but also to innovate new and fresh and creative solutions, um, which come mm -hmm. best from iteration and experimentation and risk-taking together, appropriate risks. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a cost to innovation. Um, the second is, you know, we're seeing what, you know, what they're calling the great resignation or this sort of level of disengagement that the workforce is expressing because they don't feel valued, mm. cherished, hopeful, and they can't see that the organization is pursuing a mission that lifts up their lives. Um, so I think the first doorway is to really point to the business imperatives um, that are being hindered by the absence of these qualities. I think the second thing that, and this touches me very much, every group of leaders I've ever worked with, which is, you know, I've had the privilege of guiding thousands of people through a leadership process, development process, every single person sort of rises to the invitation to pursue something deeper. Uh, I very rarely have a group say, oh, you're inviting us to feel our hearts. Oh, you're invited us, inviting us to know each other much more authentically. Oh, you're inviting us to dream wider and more with more audacity, a world we wish we could help build. People feel thrilled by the invitation to get out of the box and rise up. And we have natural capacities that are dormant when they're not invited, but they're almost immediately available and on fire when they are invited. So in some ways, it's more of an unlearning process than a learning process, this kind of development. Um, because you're taking away the societal constraints that keep us playing from much narrower range of intelligence than we actually have available to us. And I think we can see in moments of crisis in the world how spontaneously you start to see acts of generosity, acts of kindness, acts of courage. Um, and, and that's a reminder to all of us that this is genuinely the human condition and the human nature. It's just hindered by generations of traumatized experience and the cultural architecture that trauma creates. That's how I might say it. 
Well, you know, Amy, the people who come to us, to your programs, our programs, in a way are self-selected. They are responding to something, right? And, and the same is true in business schools. The, the students who take my class are the ones who already kind of feel this way. Right? This is an elective. The ones who would really experience the greatest shift, biggest impact, are not taking these classes. They're not coming to these programs. First of all, would you agree with that? Uh, and secondly, you know, th- therefore, the, the embedded mindset around why does one aspire to be a leader? It's often rooted in ego, you know, and power and money and greed and so forth, right? If I get to be a leader, I'll make a lot of money and I'll have a lot of power. And as opposed to the mindset of service, of seeking to lift people up. And so to me, that remains a challenge. But I think we've got this separation, you know, Peter Segge talked about power and virtue need to go together. But very often they don't. The most... uh, Power-hungry people are the least virtuous. The most virtuous don't seek out power. And well, so, there's just several uh, things to say, Raj, in your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, people come, I think, for two reasons. They come because they have a natural arising or um, attraction to this kind of work and want something better for themselves and better for their children's generation. Um, and they come out of, as you're saying, they come out of a resonance or a, a readiness um, they also come because they're on their knees. Um, they come when life has really crushed them and either through illness or loss or um, constant feedback about a performance gap that they have. Um, they come when they've hit a wall. And that is also a very precious moment of receptivity and possibility um, that life is giving them almost like a blessing, even though it doesn't quite look like a blessing, because it opens the aperture um, to uh, to this wisdom path, I think. Um, uh, so I, I just want to say almost always something in life will be an invitation for this window to open. And then, of course, it's up to the person whether they choose to embrace it and whether they do choose to do the hard inner work that's required once they do embrace it. But um, I do think that people can get that invitation both by magnetism and also by humility, um, or sort of the humility that life forces upon one sometimes. The second thing I would say is that a number of our clients start to see this as an organizational necessity or urgency, and they're not just doing it by making this kind of leadership development available by people who raise their hand and say, I volunteer to do this. They're insisting on the top 300, 400. We have places where they're putting the top 1,000 people through this program, really to redesign the organizational pillars of culture. Um, And when it happens at that level, first of all, you have to be delicate because you don't want to assume what each individual is ready for. You have to be very attuned in how you do something at scale and cascade it into an organization. But provided you can do that and you have that sensitivity and refinement in your methodology or your pedagogy, um, then it can become an enormous wave of hope and um, energy into the organization. Um, and people, again, I really very rarely see resistance from people mm-hmm. um, uh, to living a life that has this richness and this more um, yeah, connection, connection on every level, connection to themselves, connection to their families, connection to their peers, connection to something higher. Um, then you were pointing at the sort of movement of ego and accumulation and acquisition. Um, and I, I, I think that's going to be. I think there's a sort of collective moment of reckoning that's happening now on how, um, yeah, what, what what does greed really look like, and when is enough enough? 
And I think we're starting to have much more honest conversations that don't demonize people who have gone after that kind of greed and accumulation, but equally don't heroicize them. I think for a very long time, we've lived in a, a culture in which the folklore was that that is the highest possible aspiration. Um, and I think we're starting to instead, as Timothy said earlier, cherish those that have devoted their lives to cultivating maturity, cultivating generosity, cultivating the courage to stand for their convictions, a willingness to do the hard things. Um, and, and many of those people, as you say, Raj, don't call a lot of attention to themselves. True masters are, you know, leave no footprint. They, they, they really give from their full soul. And um, those are the people we ought to be supporting and cherishing and lifting up in story, in narrative, in media, uh, in donations. You know, the whole world should be reaching for those people and cherishing them. And one of the things I try to do very much in Mobius is to two things. One is to lift up our teachers and the intellectual and emotional giants whose work we're sitting on. And the other is to call our attention to real mystical practitioners and teachers and healers, because as Timothy said, many people really have devoted their lives to the cultivation of really refined understanding and insight of the nature of reality and how to shift um, the world in the direction of more peace and more justice. And those are the voices that we ought to yearn for. Mm. I love it. I really love the way you you broach this, uh, Amy, by both at one level appealing to the heart and the, the wisdom path, as you say, and at the same time, touching on the increasing business complexity and the world in which we live where, you know, I call it double, triple VUCA. You know, we started using the word VUCA way back in the knots, and now it's double or triple VUCA because nobody is really got a, a crystal ball to be able to look into the future anymore if we ever did but it's even less so with humongous change going on at multiple levels and um and so you know it often comes down to this question of who's going to innovate well is it going to be an organization that's got high levels of trust and high levels of engagement do we think people will take risks and take chances in an environment where that's low and an increasingly understanding that to deal with this complexity, we do have to have some type of adaptive leadership. And that's underplayed or supported more likely by the idea of how do I build trust? How do I engage people in an authentic way? And therefore, we need a different type of leadership. And yeah. I'm wondering if that language now starts to connect to this sort of wisdom path with the idea that you know we need adaptive authentic leaders and if we don't have those kind of leaders we're not going to see organizations be able to adapt shift react to an increasingly complex environment yeah i usually agree with that timothy and let me respond to it in two ways one i'll just tell a story so i was once being interviewed by the head of a private equity firm who was considering having mobius work with their ceos of their holding companies and um, he said to me, you know, can you teach my people to see the future? Because that's what they really need. And I said, well, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> I said, uh, the bad news is I can't teach them to see the future. And probably anybody that walks in here and tells you that they can is lying. I said, but the good news is, and I think this is an important thing to notice, I can teach them to slow down enough that the future starts to whisper to them. Like I think in the triple VUCA world, 
We have to ask leaders, what is the state, the interstate you need to be in in order to sense the future? Not to see the future, but to sense the future or to start to get direct knowledge from the future. And that is the cultivation of a deep quiet, a deep stillness. And we know from every tradition that has seers and people that had foresight, that that quality of inner equanimity and calm in the midst of chaos is the thing that enables the future to sing its song to them. And so going back to the speed, the addiction to speed, the addiction to doing, the addiction to exertion, the addiction to hyperdrive is, I think, the enemy of the quality of listening that you're pointing at, Timothy. That's one thing to say. The second thing, um, you know, I have the great privilege of working a great deal with Xander Grashaw, who's a theorist in adaptive leadership and one of the co-authors on um, the practice of adaptive leadership with Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky. And Xander talks a lot about um, the fact that people are not really scared of change. They're scared of loss or the perception of loss. And that that fear of loss is the thing that disequalizes people in the face of adaptive demand. Um, and it lowers the amount of productive disequilibrium people can tolerate. Mm -hmm. So if you want an organization that has the ability to adapt, to change, to turn pivot on a dime, to be responsive, to be proactively alert to what signals are in the, in the field, and to tell the difference between the signal and the noise, you have to lower the level of fear in that system. And what does it mean to lower, lower the level of fear? Well, at a behavioral level, it means to welcome people to ask questions. It means to invite dissent. Um, it means to in, you know invoke difficult conversations. There's a whole bunch of behaviors. But what I've learned over the last 19 years is that what it actually means to lower the level of fear in a system is to help people deal with the fear they walk in the door with, mm -hmm. to help people deal with the fear they walk through life with. And that's why the notion of a trauma-informed workplace, I think, is going to be so closely tied to what those organizations that do that deep healing work will have adaptive capacities that are completely disproportionate to those organizations that don't choose to commit to that work. They're going to outpace them by light years. So let's let's talk about that now. So the, the idea of a trauma-informed workplace, the idea of explicitly recognizing the need for healing and modeling that from the top, that leaders are willing to be vulnerable and acknowledge that and then making that available. Um, how is that being received? Do, do companies want to say we are trauma-informed workplaces? Are leaders willing to be that vulnerable? Now, I'm speaking from experience because I've just written a book where I've been actually very open, revealed a lot of my traumas. Yes. Under the, uh, <clears throat> what we say in ANI is that you have to reveal it and feel it in order to heal it. Yes. And most of us, we hide those or we don't talk about those kinds of those traumas. Oh, the past is the past and it doesn't matter anymore. Well, the fact is the past is never gone until you until you heal it. And in the present moment, you can heal that. So, so let's talk about healing more broadly and this idea of trauma, which I think there's personal trauma, there's family trauma, there's ancestral trauma, which we talk about through epigenetics, and of course, the collective trauma of what's happening in our world with the pandemic and climate change and such more. How do we get our yeah. So let me just um, take a moment, Raj, if I could, and pause to make two comments before I answer your invitation to talk about trauma-informed workplaces. One is just to honor you profoundly for the courage you've had to, to start talking about this in your own work 
and the pioneering book you've just written on healing and organizations. I really believe part of the movement that we're seeing for organizations to be more open to this is coming in no small part because of your leadership and your willingness to not just disclose your own um, journey of healing, but to put in sort of a sword in the sand of the necessity of this kind of deep healing work. And as one practitioner, but also on our collective behalf, I'm very grateful to you. Um, I also want to honor my teacher, Thomas Hubel, who's been talking about this for 20 years and um, starting increasingly to be working with business leaders, looking at not just personal um, trauma, but also the way those organizations have participated in damaging ways in society and what it means to help an organization restore the footprint that it's had in life, particularly where it's been in some ways violating of life's health. Um, but to answer your specific question, um, I don't think organizations are yet ready to talk about trauma-informed workplaces. I think this is still a conversation largely among practitioners. Um, I do think going forward that it will, you know, in the same way that an individual has to get to the point where they're, uh, they hit a wall and they hit bottom, I think organizations are going to start to hit bottom soon because there are going to be more and more societal fractures that interfere with the you know, ability to do daily business that enter the workplace. And we're starting to see that already, even where the movement for social justice and racial justice had to come into the workplace. It couldn't stay, you know, on the streets of the cities of, of, of at least the U.S. Um, it, it couldn't be ignored. I think that's going to be true here as well. Um, but what I do believe, the second answer to your question is, are leaders ready to do this kind of work? My experience is that many leaders are ready to do this kind of work. Um, they feel their own numbness. They feel their own um, uncried tears. They feel that the past is not in the past. It's shaping moment by moment their perception of what's possible, their self-image and self-esteem, their relational capacities. They're getting signals from the, their own children that they can't feel them and they don't um, feel loved or held. And that's showing up as a massive epidemic in mental health and teenagers. The New York Times said a few months ago that there's an 80% rise in depression and anxiety and self-harming among adolescents. So that's a collective crisis that can't be ignored and I believe is a symptom of the family of parents who haven't done their own work yet. So the moment is now. It, it, it's not It's not, It's not. not a future urgency. The moment is now. Um, and I think that's actually kinesthetically energetically uh, palpable to everyone. And all they really need is a safe container and a skillful invitation and real holding in order to open up the lockbox of their history. Um, so in our programs, we um, do some of the work, the deepest early attachment work on um, people's early childhood uh, traumas, which range from alcoholism to addiction to um, abuse, corporal punishment in school, bullying in school, premature attendance to boarding school and the abandonment that that causes, racism, forced migration, poverty, many, many things that people have lived through in their, as you said, in their family, but also absence of holding, absence of attunement. Generations who post-war didn't have an open heart to give, hadn't done their own trauma work coming back from the Second World War. And so people are born into these very, um, you know, unloving, unexpressive, unconnected family systems um, and feel the isolation and desperation of that lack of attachment. 
And all of that then operates unconsciously, subconsciously, and relationally all the rest of their lives. And when you watch somebody open the door of what has felt impossible to address and get the right amount of attuned healing and the right amount of therapeutic support, you know, it just makes you weep. It's beautiful. And um, I had a, a man in a program just this last week. He came up to me at the end of the week and he said, Amy, I want you to know that you're forever blazoned in my soul. And you gave me the chance to cry the tears I held for 60 years. And I can't think of a better thing for us to be doing in leadership development than being a refuge for uncried tears. Your way of expressing is just go straight to the soul. And it's so beautiful. For that uncried tears, you know, I wasn't able to cry for like 40 years. Right. Uh, you know, I was blocked and, you know, I built a wall around my heart and that was a way of protecting myself. And uh, yeah, and this is not uncommon. You know, we live in a world of victims of victims, right? We're carrying these wounds and other wounds inflicted on generation after generation and other kinds of wounds. So this, I think, is the paramount work. And you are at the absolute forefront of that. So we're just very grateful. Thank you. Rachel. For your teaching and for your and for your practice. Yeah, I really, I do think it's the work of our generation to help people come home to themselves. And I honestly don't know another way to unwind the disconnection that's causing us to create such violence and such damage to one another and um, and to miss the, the urgent, beyond urgent need to care for the ecosystem and the biosphere. Only a numb and traumatized world would be so unresponsive and so slow to care. Um, and we just can't let that be the legacy we leave to the next generation. Yeah, that's so well put, you know, and it's, it's, um, you probably, I don't know if you guys follow this, but, you know, Pope Francis has written in 2015, he writ, wrote a, a wonderful, wonderful piece on the nature of spirituality in the ecosystem. And this week he published the follow up to that, in which he really takes several industrialized countries and their leadership to task for missing the spiritual dimension of the importance of our connection to nature our connection to one another and but in very practical terms so it's it's interesting to me that increasingly with the environmental movement with the social just movement social justice movement we're being called to step into um new era of seeing how humans relate to one another and to the world in which we live which is essentially always been uh, a spiritual journey that one goes on and and i'm curious you know if uh one of the things that we've lost along the way is um how people get into that spiritual journey i mean some of us for whatever reasons we got on the journey at an earlier age or in a different direction didn't come through leadership development training came from probably trauma and other things in our lives um and you know by the time it gets to that leadership moment it's sort of we're trying to repair damage that's been done earlier or trying to reorient people in a way and um and i'm curious how we support particularly the younger generation the gen z uh, that is you say that have a natural proclivity for this how do we help them recognize that this is a, a very human piece of being um 
of, of growing and developing as a human being in life. This is, need we say, a spiritual psycho journey to understanding yourself better so you can be more effective, more impactful, more alive in the world. Um, how do we start having that dialogue earlier um, so that we're not doing remedial education by the time they get to be senior leaders and we're trying to help them you know, undo some damage that, that, that's been done? I mean, I think that's a, such a visionary question, Timothy. It's not my particular area of expertise in terms of early childhood education. Um, but I can say, you know, it would be worth a close examination of all the ways that we're talking people, kids out of, um, you know, what would otherwise be, as you said, you know, a natural orientation to be close to nature, to be close to creativity, to be close to each other, regardless of skin color, gender, um, you know, kids just get this right in a way that adults do not. And unless until they're taught, um, there's a Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, song that says you have to be taught, to, to carefully taught to hate. I think that's that's true. And um, so, again, I think thinking about how people are parenting and how families are supported and not left in isolation to manage the level of pressure that they're under. Um, building real community and real, whether it's a congregation or a, um, a social organization, um, I think the sort of decay of social fabric and the over-nuclearization of our society so that people feel like the unit of support is just their immediate family versus their neighborhood or their parish or, um, you know, their wider social network. That's part of the dilemma mm -hmm. of how spirit gets crushed. Um, because we need each other so badly and because life inevitably can be challenging and will be challenging. And this notion of autonomy is, I think, diabolical um, in it, the way that it plays out um, and shames people. I do a module in my leadership programs about relational needs. And I argue that one of the shadows of the wall that Raj pointed to that we all operate behind, the shield that we all operate behind, is that we don't get a relational vocabulary we don't actually know how each other could, what we could ask each other for emotionally. So when I say, how could people support you? People can usually come up with a bunch of problem solving tasks, ways they could solve problems with them. But emotionally, they don't have a vocabulary for needs much beyond listen to me or hold me, both of which are beautiful things, but they're not anywhere near the enormous repertoire of ways people could support you. And then we brainstorm, you know, a hundred different relational support opportunities and people almost inevitably and painfully to me executives high functioning highly successful executives will in that moment have a penny drop and realize they have no one in their life they could ask mm. they have not built a support system in which they are cherished and loved and nurtured and nourished and seen and celebrated and pushed and um you know evolved and so that building of that ecosystem in a way is really for me, the first sign of a successfully activated spiritual life. Um, it's perhaps why I felt so strongly about making Mobius such a living and vibrant community, because I early on had enough experiences of walking too alone to know that that's not the natural way life wants to weave itself. Um, I think the second thing is to just say that when we talk about spirituality in the workplace, which I believe is an enormously undertapped resource, I don't mean religious practice, although I honor that it could be expressing itself as religious practice. And for many people, it does. I really do mean 
um, moving, as Raj said earlier, from an orientation to what can I get from me and what can I personally actualize to how can I be um, a noble member of society? How can I be part of the commons in a successful way? Um, it struck me this weekend, we're, we're doing this podcast right after um, the Hamas attack in Israel. And the line that the Hamas said was, if you have a gun, get it out. That was the call to arms that they used just before they attacked. And I was trying to think, what's the spiritual equivalent of if you're ready to be a peacemaker, step in now. And I came up with the Hebrew word hineni. And hineni means, and technically, literally, it means I am here. But it's used as a prayer to offer your life to service, to healing, to restoration, to what in Jewish terms would be the tikkun olam, the repair of the world. And I thought, that's what as practitioners, as healers, as leadership professionals, we need to do is to prepare our own deep inner hineni so that as the world gapes towards such agony, we can step in as fabric of repair. And we've refined ourselves to do that with skill and love, vast love. Beautiful. Wow, Amy, Beautiful. You know, I've, I've long been looking for a word which is the opposite of weaponize because we weaponize so much in our culture, right? That's we right. Power, we weaponize relationships and, and so many things. But what's the opposite of that? You know, weaponize is it's but maybe that's the word that you're talking about, you know, and, and going back to that uh, question around education, it occurred to me recently that I had six years of business school education, two years of MBA and four years of PhD, and then the first 20 years of my career. And I realized that I was never moved or inspired in those 26 years. Not once. I can't point to a single instance where I was emotionally connected or in my spirit, I was uplifted by what I was learning. It was all about the head and the wallet. Everything is about the numbers, the analytics, the models, and strategies and so forth, and all of it going to the bottom line. And we leave out you know, the humanity in between. And we misunderstand the bottom line. As your yeah, and of course, yeah, we have a narrow understanding of the bottom line, right? That's and so right. knowing me, of course, I came up with an acronym, right? I have to do that <laughs> for everything. <I> do. <laughs> this one is, is the wish. The wish is the wallet which is financial intelligence, the intellect, analytical intelligence, but then the spirit and the heart, spiritual intelligence and emotional intelligence. You know, we need to bring those in. And if I think back now, further in my education, my undergrad and engineering, there was no heart and spirit there. And even in my high school and before. So I, I just think we leave it all out. We make it all about what do you need to learn in order to make it in the world, right? defined as material success, pretty much. And so, yeah, it's a fundamental uh, uh, leaving out of what it means to be human. We're the only creatures. Yeah, that's that. right. That's right, Raj. I mean, it's the business school devoid of the heart and spirit it reflects the split in the larger culture between the imminent and the transcendent or the spiritual and the human. Um, uh, that split is, you know, the sort of deepest cut that causes the trauma symptoms we've been pointing at throughout this conversation. And the reintegration of spirit into the fabric of life, that is also the repair, best done through relation and through intimacy. And in some ways, we're talking about just the movement of a society from the infrastructure of fear to the unbridled possibility of love. Um, and uh you know, I'm grateful to have even a small part in that movement, but I think everybody listening on this call 
is being asked to think about how they can do that in big and small ways in their own lives. Yeah. If I could just build on that, uh, because one of the things I write about in, in the book, Awaken, is my experience in the Amazon rainforest with the shamans and the healing through ayahuasca. The visions that I got that night, one of which was I was shown a long line of people waiting for a hug from Amma. You know Amma from India? The I do, Amazon. of course. And the message was all these people standing in line could be hugging each other. That we, mm-hmm. we are the source of suffering, as we're seeing today in the world for each other, but we're also the source of healing. Right? And we have to move to that place. And the other vision I got was another acronym, the list. And it goes to what you were just saying, that every single thing we do should come from love, not fear. Not I think most business decisions are rooted in fear and greed, right? It's about making more money and making sure we don't lose to the competition. Can we make every decision from love? So that's the only way to heal. You can hurt, many ways to hurt, but only. And then innocence. Yeah, in my experience, the journey to that kind of love, that true, unconditional, selfless love. It's a long journey of self-restoration because when we're acting from fear that those survival mechanisms were needed at the time that they were put in place and they can't be unwound just by the intention to love, they really really do need um, support and kind attention to, to go to rest, to go to sincere rest, abiding rest. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for pointing that. That's where you cannot do that unless you work on your own healing. That's right. I'm whole in that way. And the second was innocence. Mm. You know, we're all born innocent and then we get corrupted into the ways of the world. And we learn to use our incredible intelligence, not to serve and to love, but to over, you know, to overpower and to manipulate and to use other people. We learn to lie and cheat to get what we want. And we don't have a choice as a child, but as an adult, you can choose to return to innocence. I will not knowingly cause suffering to another. I will be a source of healing. That's so beautiful, Raj. I I want to agree with one thing and point to just maybe a slight difference in another. I sometimes say in my programs, you know, there's there's um, in uh, Hindu philosophy, the heart is considered an energy center or a chakra. And uh, my friend Shai Tubali taught me that there are three chambers of the heart chakra. The first is the outer heart, which is emotionally responding to the day-to-day circumstances of your life. The middle heart is the part of our history that reverberates or gets triggered by what's happening in the day-to-day circumstances of our lives. That's the part where the past walks with you as hardwiring and why people have what seems like disproportionate emotional reactions to things. But the inner chamber of the heart is the luminous dimension of the heart that has the innocence you're pointing to. And I really believe with all my being that no matter what hurt has happened in your life that lives in your middle heart, deeper than that, there's a part of the heart that cannot be hurt and that enduringly lives in that innocence and expansiveness and grace. Um, And, you know, in some ways, we're walking the journey home back to the inner heart or the heart cave. Yeah, I think it's the, the Chinese text. I can't forget it's the Tai Chi or which one, but it says at, the, at your innermost being is the, is the, there dwells an innocent spirit, yes. which is your core essence. Yes, I totally believe that. All good comes from that. I totally believe that. I just want to caution us about the word corruption, um, because I think there are corrupt actions, but there, it's not that we get corrupted. We get scared, and then mm-hmm. we compensate for our terror with actions that are corrupting. Um, and I think what you're pointing to by the use of the word corruption is the urgency to get alignment with life, with your own ethics, with your convictions, with your highest potential. That I agree with that completely. 
But I want to be really careful that we don't collude with language that suggests mm. people are doing things out of evil or out of um, innate violence versus ignorance, ignorance, and, ignorance yeah. and trauma. Mm. Yeah, beautifully put, beautifully. The last is truth, right? I mean, we talk about, we're moving towards complexity as well. We think about these things in a deeper way. But there is a simplicity on the other side of complexity, which is what we're ultimately striving for, what really matters, and it all becomes rather simple then. And then truth. I'm reading Gandhi's autobiography right now in preparation for program. We're going to India in November, a few weeks from now, um, which is called Lead Like Gandhi. It's a seven-day, six-and-a-half-day program. And you know, his autobiography is called My Experiments with Truth. And truth is more fundamental than, than even peace, because without truth, there can be no peace as we saw with the peace, truth, and reconciliation process. So I think these are some of the, the elements around all of this right, that we need to connect with at a deep level. It's a beautiful, beautiful model. I'm reminded of Thomas's teaching that um, uh, simplicity is complexity in the right size cup. <laughs> so part of what we're doing is widening the amount the container. of container. The container, that's right, yeah. Yeah, widen the container. Amy, one of the things we always do towards the end of our podcast is talk a little bit at the personal level of, you know, what got Amy Elizabeth Fox on this path? Why are you here? What was the, what were a couple of one or two seminal moments in your journey that got you to be the soul and the person you are today with your gifts? Such a generous, intimate question. I mean, I think maybe one thing to say is that I um, had a difficult enough childhood that I was called very early to uh, my own therapeutic work um, with a, with an urgency. I think if I hadn't received the support of real, very skilled teachers, healers, body workers, um, uh, I, I would have fallen apart. I mean, I was really, you know, in danger of being somebody that could have gotten very marginalized by inner chaos. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and I got had the great grace of meeting, and you know, over and over and over, extraordinary teachers and healers and guides, and I came to really appreciate um, the precious jewels in our society of people who've devoted themselves to the healing arts over, as I you know, their whole lifetime, and what it means to encounter such a person, and then show up and make that a priority in your life. Um, so I think there's just the inner necessity um, that my life shaped in me to go on that quest for myself. Um, a second milestone is having the enormous privilege of my sister, Eric Ariel Fox, teaching at Harvard Law School, being part of the peacemaking and uh, dispute resolution lineage of Roger Fisher and William Urey and Bruce Patton. Um, and so early on, I got asked and invited to teach their work. Um, and that was how I transitioned from practicing as a psychotherapist and healer to practicing as a leadership expert. And um, that was, of course, a pivotal moment. Um, and I think uh, and I think the third one was that I um, you mentioned um, the Pope's letter. That letter comes out of a sort of movement. I had the great joy to be part of in the late 80s and early 90s. I worked with Carl Sagan and then Senator Gore and Paul Gorman and um, Dean Morton, a group of religious leaders to try to kickstart a faith-based response to the climate crisis. And um, I was very young. I was in my early 20s, and they apprenticed me amazingly well about cross-model dialogue and large-scale social change. 
and also what it means to help people awaken to the issues of our time and the climate crisis perhaps being the most universal and urgent. Um, and that apprenticeship then helped me to understand myself, not just um, as a healer, but as a social entrepreneur and to take seriously that any small group of people can make a wave into the society of change that really matters. Um, and I have had the joy of doing that ever since. So I don't know, there's probably a lot I could say. I feel like I've had a very blessed life, but those are a few in response to your sweet question, Timothy. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your beautiful soul with us today. You've touched me in very deeply in many of the things you've brought up. And um, I really admire the work you're doing out in the world and um, the work you're doing with Mobius and the work you're doing with the Next Practice Institute. Thank uh, you yes. for all of that. Thank you for mentioning that. Let me just add, Timothy, if I could, that um, we stream the keynotes from the Next Practice Institute's annual gathering live and free on Facebook. They'll be up on um, the Mobius Facebook page the week of October 15th, so and archived thereafter on our website. So whenever you're listening to this, please come join us and enjoy some of those talks. And Timothy, thank you also for your visionary work over many years in this domain. It's just wonderful to be with both of you. Yes, Amy, Thank I also you. want to uh, express my appreciation uh, for uh, just your presence and, and the way you know, what comes through you is just incredibly beautiful and fully formed. And it's just mm. a joy to behold. One of the th links that we will provide is to the talk that you gave, I think, at the end of last year's Next Practice Institute, kind of a summarization of all of the work that's been going on, and that, that was pretty incredible. So we will provide that. And I've, I've actually visited and I sat in on some of the sessions over there. Uh, this year we are going to be out, but we're definitely going to catch it. So again, thank you for the work you do and forward to working with you in some capacity. I do as well. Take care, everybody. All right. And thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's show on whatever channel you're listening to, please hit the subscribe button. And if you'd like to give us some feedback or a rating, go on over to Apple and iTunes where you can leave us some feedback, which we always love to hear and or give us a rating. And thank you also to Tech Sounds and Tech de Monterey for their production support and for their supporting this program. We appreciate that enormously. Thank you. Until next week. Bye.